Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Wherever you are, whoever you are, whenever you may be listening, I am Benjamin Castle. I am Ethan Castle. Together we are Americans Watching the Footy, and we are back together at home in South San Francisco, California, recording in person again. Ethan got back from his Midwestern Spooktacular just earlier today. Yes, and don't forget, Spooktaculars don't just have to be for Halloween. You can be spooky any time of year. I think it would be really cool if you, you know, you know how girls give their friends spooky baskets for Halloween. I think you should give someone a spooky basket, like completely out of season. I think Halloween out of season is one of the funnier holidays you could celebrate out of season. You know, like halfway to Christmas or Christmas in July is a thing. What holiday would be the most unfitting to celebrate out of season? I think Halloween's up there, but I want to hear your thoughts before I give my final answer. I mean, April Fool's Day, it's kind of baked into the name, so celebrating that out of season would be particularly strange. Well, you celebrate April Fool's Day out of season, you're just playing pranks on people, which is normal. Fair enough. I'm going to go with Thanksgiving. You know, I was thinking that at first, but then I was like, nah, Thanksgiving seems almost too tame. I'm saying this because I remember years ago, I was on a train, and there was a woman wearing, like, Thanksgiving nurse scrubs, and it was, like, the middle of the summer. And it was just the funniest thing to the point that I still remember it. You know, seeing someone wear Christmas stuff out of season, okay, either they really like Christmas or they had nothing else to wear, but to see Thanksgiving stuff in the middle of the summer. Thanksgiving nurse scrubs, no less. I think it was a nurse commuting to or from work, but whether or not it was a nurse, the fact is it was so out of place that I'm still talking about it. And how long ago was this? Well, I don't ride BART very much anymore by design. It's a terrible system, but... I would think six years ago minimum could be anywhere from like six to eight or nine years ago. Man, that's a lot more fun than the stuff you usually see on BART, that's for sure. I'm quite familiar with BART, having taken it a bunch the past few years going between home and Cal. Thankfully, don't have to take it that much anymore, if at all, because I've graduated. A lot of American cities do have good public transit. The New York City subway, Chicago Metro, just to name a couple. Some smaller cities like the Cleveland Red Line was actually quite nice. I just learned that in the past couple weeks, though. There's stations who have some really weird modern art. But of the good transit systems, BART is not one of them. It's all messed up in the Bay Area because the counties weren't able to get together and say, hey, let's have one system to unite the entire Bay. Think Burren County, which is north of the Golden Gate Bridge, the other side of the bridge from San Francisco. Not wanting it definitely had its impact. There are good parts of the public transit system around. Caltrain's fine, smooth rides. Just doesn't run regularly enough, and it's one track each way. But this is not Americans criticizing the public transportation. This is Americans watching the footy, though I will say, if you're ever coming to the U.S., I would love to give you travel and transit recommendations and all that. I believe I've mentioned this before, but I'll say it again. I've been to most major cities in the United States and can point you in the right direction. And if by chance it's one of the few major cities I haven't been to, I can point you to someone who knows it. Um, how many states have you been? I haven't 32. Been. So together we've been to 33. <laughs> Is the only one that you've been to that I haven't been. I mean, like that I have been to that you haven't been. Tennessee. 34. Well, yeah, because Tennessee, I mean, I haven't stepped outside the airport. So doesn't, doesn't count. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, think, which ones have I been to that you haven't? A lot. Most of, a lot of the Midwestern stuff, probably. Idaho? Idaho, Montana, Wyoming. I was going to say those. Um, Ohio, Michigan, Michigan, Wisconsin. See, South Dakota. You've been to North Dakota? No. Minnesota? Oh, you've been to the one big Dakota. Iowa? 
Kansas, Nebraska, Texas, Delaware. Have you been to Delaware? No, I have been to New Jersey because Ellis Island. Yeah, I've also flown into Newark and taken the train, so. Yeah, but Ellis Island is Hudson County. It's Let's tiny. see. Okay, well, can we go? Yes. Um, as always, we like to run through some of the weekly news, or at least semi-weekly news, because it's only been a couple of days since we last recorded. We recorded our 42nd episode, our round 16 recap before the final MRO rulings and one tribunal hearing occurred. And so we have reports from all of those now. Three important verdicts there. Eric Hipwood got his controversy in the first game of the round, the Thursday night opener, or when he pushed Ryan Gardner into an umpire and the umpire fell down. No push was called, no foul was called. In fact, Hipwood scored on the play. I'm completely confused by the verdict because he was guilty of umpire contact and kind of pushing the umpire through Gardner, but he wasn't suspended for it. And from that, I can only conclude that had Toby Green done this, he would have been suspended for 11 games. And then two suspensions handed down from Sunday's games. Nick Flossstone of Richmond was suspended for striking Connor West during the Tigers' 35-point win over the Eagles. It was deemed to be intentional conduct and high contact. Looked like the punch may have initially been targeted at the shoulder, but slipped to West's head. And uh, yeah, that's a no-no, and that's an important no-no because of Flawstone's role, which we'll get into closer to the middle of this episode. And the other one was that Will Day of Hawthorne was suspended the game for forceful front-on contact against Josh Kelly in their loss. I was surprised that Tom Jonas was able to get away with not being suspended for the bump he put on James H. where he left his feet. That puzzles me in comparison. Jonas was simply fined $2,000 for that. Also of note, Stuart Dew has been extended through the 2024 season. We've talked a lot about the Suns in the last few weeks, and unfortunately, their finals hopes have taken a hit. This week is going to basically be do or die for them. No pun intended. But I will say, over the course of this year, I've really grown to like Stuart Dew, and I still don't know if he's that good of a coach, but I know that I want him to be a good coach. I want the Suns to do well. I really like a lot of the players they have. They've cobbled together a good list over the years, partially because of a lot of unsuccessful campaigns. But you've got to also feel for the guys because of the injuries they've had recently. Three ACLs in the past three and three weeks. Yeah, I think it's three ACLs in as many weeks between Lockie Weller, Will Powell, and now Connor Butterick, who tore his right ACL for the second time in a year and a half. And remember, the Suns didn't have Ben King this entire year, so future ought to be bright for them. And look, and we know that Stuart Dew will be there, and it looks like Dew will be there to lead the next two years of it as of now. So make it out what you will. I hope he gets to invite many more grandfathers into the circle to sing the club song. Yeah, should I give the Ray Gunson stuff? Sure. Lastly, some sadder news. Former AFL executive Ray Gunston died at age 64 of a heart attack. Ray is also the father of Hawthorne's Jack Gunston and has been a particularly important figure for the league in the past few decades. Some of his later work included serving as Essendon CEO in 2013 in the wake of a supplements scandal, keeping them afloat, keeping them afloat and starting to point them in the right direction. And also some of his financial negotiations really helped the league in 2020 when he helped put together the deal to establish the line of credit using Marvel Stadium as collateral. I find it interesting the way families kind of spread across different realms of the AFL, whereas in American sports, that's typically not the case. Like you have big families in various sports, but it's like either they're all executives or they're all owners or they're all players. You know, it's like, it's not like, you know, here's a guy who's the NFL commissioner and his son's a linebacker and then his son's an important agent and his nephew's a broadcaster. You don't have that. It's much more, you know, you stay in like one line the whole way. Whereas there's definitely a lot more overlap here. The main branching out that I'm thinking of right now is Gillum and Hamish McLaughlin. I just find it so strange that one of the top broadcasters in all of Australian sports happens to be the brother of the CEO, and there's really no problem with it, it seems. What if, if there is one, it'll definitely be cleared up when Gil resigns. 
at the end of this year. And we'll definitely have more talking points regarding the CEO search when we get more news on that front. But we've got a whole lot to talk about in terms of the nine matchups this week. We'll probably speed through one or two of them because they lack the because they lack big finals implications, but most involve at least one team that's still in the mix, and that's certainly the case. It's not quite round 15 where every game is between teams within four spots of each other on the ladder. It's mostly competitive matchups, though, especially when you consider the context of teams that started the year looking like shit and they're still in a bad spot on the ladder, but have been much more competitive lately. And we do have some games that are pretty close to each other in terms of where teams currently stand, including both our Thursday night and Friday night contest this week. So let's start with the Thursday matchup. For the second time in three rounds, we've got a one. We've got number two on the ladder hosting number one. This time it's yeah. Yeah. Second time at three. This time it's Geelong hosting Melbourne at the Cattery. This is in the typical Thursday time slot of open the door, open the door. And he gets one chance. One chance, buddy, bug. This time, it's Geelong hosting Melbourne at the Cattery. <sighs> um, okay, so, can I start? Sure. For the second time in three rounds, we've got number two hosting number one on Thursday night. It's Geelong playing host to Melbourne at the Cattery. This is in the typical Thursday time slot. So, 7.20 p.m. in Mel- 20 p.m. in Geelong. So, that, that, that converting to 5.20 a.m. Eastern, 2.20 a.m. Pacific in the United States. And we're in luck because this game is available on Fox Sports 2 in addition to being streamable on Watch AFL. I am glad to be back on Pacific time for this. It's a lot easier to accommodate watching all these games, including this one in particular. It'll be nice that I won't have to sleep and then wake up for it. I can get in the zone hours before, stay in the mood and get ready for a huge game here with the Cats entering 11 and 4, the D's entering at 12 and 3, and Geelong looking to make up for past transgressions. These teams met three times last year and they were three pretty different meetings. And they were three very different meetings from each other. In round 4, actually Geelong gone off to a slow start last year, right? Yeah, they were they started 1 and 2. Two and two. Yeah. Because they barely won on Easter Monday. It went, I think that was round three. Yeah, it went. Lost to the Crows. Crows, Lions, Hawks, Steves. Yeah, right. In round four, in round four, Melbourne stayed undefeated and should have won by a lot more than they did because they had 10 more scores than Geelong did. Still got the job done by 25 points. Then in their home and away finale at, at Cardinia Park, it went down to the final seconds. Max gone. Kicked after the siren to complete a 44-point comeback as Melbourne secured the minor premiership by the score of 81-77. to I am so glad I was on the East Coast and slept through that. I was glad as well. And then there was the preliminary final out in Perth where the D's put on, where the D's put on the hurt and then some, recording an 83-point victory, their largest ever against the Cats. To springboard them into the grand final, where they would put on, where they would put on a pretty similar beating of the Western Bulldogs, though with more of an interesting arc than that prelim. The D's really pulled away in the third quarter of that preliminary final, and it was one of those games where Max Gone was just everywhere. He finished that night with not just thirty-three hitouts, but six tackles and five goals. It was one of those. You know, you heard the talk. It felt like there was more than one of him on the ground at all times. And that was definitely the case. I can tell you for sure that there will be at least one of him on the ground this week, as he will be back from his ankle syndesmosis. Additionally, Luke Jackson will be back from his knee injury. I was really hoping both would head out to Alice Springs and get immersed in the community there in advance of the Port Adelaide game. Just get a head start on that, you know, make up for not getting out there last year. Spend two weeks out there, maybe bring Petraka and Oliver with them and let the rest of the team handle this game because playing in Alice Springs is special. So I was really hoping that would be the case for them. But in turn, this becomes a much more difficult game for Geelong because the Demons have decided not to serve their community. What is being served is a suspension by Tom Stewart. What? 
That was good. Yeah, then you interrupted it, fuckwit. Sorry, dickheads. Assballs. I prefer Ed Balls. Is there an Ed Richards Day? No. What? But he is playing. What is being served is a suspension, the second of a four-match ban for Tom Stewart. However, because Sam DeConnick has essentially been confirmed to return after being a late out last time. Additionally, Joel Selwood should be back after being managed last week. And he and Patrick Dangerfield had been question marks for a while. Of course, Dangerfield played somewhat limited minutes against North, but scored in the first 15 seconds. So he looked more than fine, up to speed in more ways than one, because he's still a damn fast player. I thought it was his best running game in a long time in terms of running with the ball. That said, I don't know how many chances he's going to get to do that this week with the way the Melbourne zone likes to suffocate teams. And obviously that's where this game is going to be won and lost. I think back to the sequences in Geelong's lone home defeat so far this year against Fremantle, especially in the third quarter when the Cats would just be so stymied by the Fremantle forward pressure that they'd end up just kind of kicking the ball around in their own end. And then when they finally tried to get it out, they'd turn it over and it would usually lead to a goal. And even though even though this time they'll be facing one of the lowest pressure teams instead of one of the highest pressure teams, that same sort of concept of just not having an outlet, not having an avenue could become really important. Um, close, is, close is a wing guy a lot, right? Holmes is really the wing guy, though. Um, yeah, but he can't. Between Max Holmes and Brad Close, I could definitely see Geelong. I could definitely see Geelong trying to get out on the wings against pretty much any other team, but not when you've got Ed Langdon and James Harms patrolling for Melbourne. So I think that as narrow as Cardinia Park is already, it's going to feel even narrower for the Cats. Um, I'm gonna. Can I finish the injury report for Geelong? Sure. We talked about the ins. Uh, we haven't talked about the outs other than Stewart. Jake Kolajashny is in concussion protocol, and Brandon Parfit is still out, as far as we know, still recovering from his broken hand. Question marks surrounding Gary Rowan. Could he be back from illness finally? First he had COVID, then he had something else. Considering how long he's been out, I wonder if it was like mononucleosis or something like that. Ooh, the kissing disease. In terms of players that I expected to have a big game for Melbourne last week but didn't, I particularly think of... Bailey Frisch, he did get that milestone goal in his 100th game um, in the fourth quarter, I believe it was. But he hasn't been scoring at the same clip as of late, and I find it hard to think that he'll be getting many opportunities when Geelong's backs have been able to lock down so much. The question is, who does he end up getting matched up against? Because Sam DeConing, whoever else is down there, probably Jack Henry, Zach Guthrie. I find it likely that DeConing will be focusing on whichever ruck isn't taking those contests. Then you may have to deal with that other ruck still if they push if they push forward. And then maybe Fritch could be might be a secondary or sometimes tertiary target. What matchups do you see as the Cats fan in the room? I think with guys like Cam Guthrie, you know what you're gonna get. He's not necessarily gonna outplay whoever he's gonna go up against, but he'll hold his own. I think the area you can win this game is if you get a really big performance out of someone like Brad Close, who has such a high ceiling, whether it be out of him, Max Holmes. I'm looking for a bounce back game from Mark O'Connor. He's been struggling for a while. I don't know if you put him on Oliver, if you put him on Petraka, how exactly you deploy him. But if you can take out one of the major possession midfielders to the Demons, it would be huge. And I think unless someone like Fritsch just goes off, I don't think you really want to waste one of your best taggers on one of Melbourne's forwards. And that's not a knock on Melbourne's forwards forwards, Melbourne's forwards. It's just look at which position group is the best of them. And it's the midfield. We could go on thinking about potential matchups. We're going to let the game come to us on this one because that's kind of what you do for these super high profile matchups. Currently on Bovada, Melbourne are favored by one and a half. I know this line has shifted around a bit. It was Geelong by half a point earlier today likely shifted back toward the D's with the gone and Jackson news. I just stay away from this game aside from betting on Oliver 30 plus. I would probably bet the D's because I feel like there are scenarios obviously for either team to win a close game. And I think in a close game, it's basically a coin flip. I just think there are more outcomes in which Melbourne wins this game by a lot than there are in which Geelong wins this game by a lot. So 
you know, if you're drawing the line, where am I setting the point spread so that half the money goes on each side so that the house makes money? I would probably put it a couple more points in Melbourne's favor, but maybe my thoughts here don't really align with that of the average gambler. Worth considering. Whereas Thursday Night Footy will be a quest to stay at home throughout the final series, Friday Night Footy is more about staying in the picture altogether because with a shock loss last week, all of a sudden the Sydney Swans are down to eight. So as much as the Bulldogs may be in desperation mode once again after their loss to Brisbane, you could argue that the heat is on for Sydney as well. The Swans and Dogs will get underway at 7.50 p.m. local time on Friday night on the 8th, 5.50 a.m. Eastern, 2.50 a.m. Pacific in the U.S., where it can be viewed on Fox Soccer Plus. As you said, the Swans are in 8th. They're at 9-6 and six after losing by 9 to Essendon at the G last round. One of the most entertaining games of the year so far and one of the most shocking results. While the Bulldogs are in 10th at 8-7, still looking very good on percent. They didn't compete all that well against the Lions last round, but you said that you didn't see that as a game where they had their backs against the wall as much because you don't expect to pick up points to GABA. My belief about the Bulldogs so far this year has been when they're in a must-win game to keep their season alive, they win it. In turn, if this is an important game for the Bulldogs, they will win. If the Bulldogs lose, I will say, oh, it wasn't important. On to the next one. All is well. When these teams met in round three at Marvel Stadium, the Bulldogs could not kick straight to save their souls, but the Swans had trouble getting the ball out of their own end, and so the Dogs got over the line by 11 points. 11 more scores, and turned out to win by 11 more points. That was back at the time when we really thought goal-kicking accuracy was one of the Dogs' biggest issues. It seems to be less of an issue lately, but they've got plenty of other problems to focus on such as losing most of their small defenders over the last couple of weeks, though it looks like they will get Ed Richards back from concussion protocol for this game. On top of that, they will also have a healthy Tim English, which completely changes how they play. I've said it before, English is the most versatile Ruckman in the competition. He was a midfielder before he had a big growth in his mid-teens, and you can definitely see that with how fluidly he's able to move the ball throughout the oval. Definitely think that English being in may squeeze out Josh Shackey because Shackey has been that sort of tall goal square presence guy and you won't need that as much with English back in. In terms of the small defenders, Taylor DeRay and Caleb Daniel each have knee issues. Daniel is a cartilage problem. He'll miss two to three more weeks. And for DeRay, it's a strained medial collateral ligament and he's still got three to four weeks to go. As for Josh Bruce, who had recovered from his ACL injury suffered, Late last year, he had a setback in that and is expected to play VFL this week. Hopefully, he'll make it back to the big time pretty soon. The injury report for Sydney is a little bit less complicated, a little bit briefer. Sounds like Isaac Heaney should be fine after suffering a court quad. And it looks like Josh P. Kennedy is on the verge of returning from a hamstring injury that's kept him out for the better part of two months. Back to the Bulldogs real quick. At this point, we've just kind of gotten into the groove that we're not going to see Bailey Smith for a while. Well, it looks like next week we'll see him because this will be the fourth and final week of his pair of two-game suspension. The thing that really changed the game for the worse for the Swans in round three was Tom Hickey going down injured. Yeah, was Tom Hickey going down injured? He didn't return from that until round nine. With him healthy and with Pete Latham's Standing a pretty good chance to return now. He was rested last week after being suspended for the prior game, so maybe it was the club coming down on him more harshly than the league did. I expect them to have all hands on deck trying to counter Tim English. Vons are favored by nine and a half. Seems appropriate. I don't have anything to criticize. I'm just thinking about how playing at the SCG could factor into this game with it being shorter. Are we going to definitely seems like we should be aligned for a higher scoring affair than what we had last time between the SCG's dimensions, the defensive outs for the dogs. I can definitely see more scenarios in which the Swans manage to run away with this than the dogs do, where the line factors in and where the depleted back line for the dogs may present problems for them. You got the McCartan brothers patrolling the defensive 50 for the Swans. I'm hoping for a big game out of one of the younger Swans players that has been quieter as of late. Seems like Logan McDonald hasn't been on a hot streak in a bit, so 
maybe it's his time. They've been distributing the ball well, but I just don't think he's been getting as many good looks or as many looks at all. We have four games on tap for Saturday, and I really don't think we're going to spend all that much time talking about the first of those. I mean, it's the Jaden Stevenson revenge game. It's the Rocca Cup, I guess, between Sav having played for both and Anthony having played for Collingwood and currently being North's development coach. I was mostly thinking of Sav Rocca because, of course, he went over to America to be a punter. Regardless, it's Collingwood in North Melbourne at the G, the typical Saturday afternoon slot, 1.45 p.m. in Melbourne, 11.45 p.m. Eastern, 8.45 p.m. Pacific on Friday the 8th in the United States. This is another Fox Soccer Plus game. Collingwood enter in sixth place all of a sudden after other teams on the fringe of finals faltered. They took advantage of the win they grinded out last week over the Gold Coast Suns to leapfrog to jump further up and really entrench themselves in a good position, especially when they look keen to get an 11th win against the clear bottom of the ladder in terms of record and form for North, who are alone in last at 1-14. Oh, and whereas North have lost 13, 13 <laughs> in a row, Collingwood have won six consecutively. These teams met under the roof last year in round eight, with Collingwood winning by 18. Last week, in what turned out to be a great win against the Suns, it looked like Collingwood was having a bit of a Wario moment. You know, I've won, but at what cost? After what looked like a really nasty injury to Darcy Moore. Turns out, all he did was hyperextend his knee. Not only was he cleared of structural damage, there's an outside chance he plays this week. It could have been really a horror week for Collingwood in terms of their key defenders between him and potential replacement from the VFL, Charlie Dean, suffering a leg injury in their reserves game against Richmond. But with Jeremy Howe returning from illness, it could potentially just be as easy a swap as him in for more if Darcy isn't cleared to play. One way or another, even if he does play, I imagine he won't be at complete strength, so... We'll put even more of a spotlight on Nathan Murphy, who I think we undervalued in our progress report. I'm not sure if we even mentioned him. Since he's been back, Collingwood's defense and their intercepting numbers have improved so much. It's really alleviated a lot of the pressure on Moore, who ventures away from the back line a decent amount, but he wasn't afforded that luxury until Murphy made his season debut in round 10. North got absolutely embarrassed last week, quadrupled up. They've now lost 11 games in a row by at least 47 points, but at least they're getting some level of reinforcements this week. Jason Horton Francis back from a two-week suspension. Looks like Jack Zeebel should be able to return from his facial injury. And Aiden Bonner and Bailey Scott could both get in this week. Bonner dealing with a hamstring injury. Scott has had a hip issue. They are going to be without Aaron Hall for a week or two after he strained his quad muscle in the first five minutes of the loss to Geelong. I believe it was the earliest the sub was activated this year, even earlier than Dane Zorko a couple days prior. Also of note, Kane Turner is in concussion protocols. How funny would it be if Collingwood lost this game? <laughs> I don't think funny would even begin to describe it because, I mean, the entire Collingwood fan base would refuse to accept the result, and not just, you know, in disbelief, but in a sort of riotous manner. Now, I'm not trying to say anything negative about the Collingwood fan base, but if you lose to this North team and you don't have top-ups playing, I don't know how much could have gone wrong for that result to be possible. There's a reason Collingwood are favored by 56 and a half. And I think that's pretty fair. Again, it's, it's really hard to place an appropriate point spread when you expect a blowout. Because there's so many things that can factor into what the final score looks like. You know, does the winning team take their foot off the gas in the fourth? Does the losing team just give up, basically? There's so many different things that can affect this. And with the ease of scoring in Australian rules football, it's even tougher to figure out a line than in American football, where you can see, especially in college, some pretty ridiculous spreads but not to this level. The biggest point spread upset in American college football is 45 points. Pulled off by Howard University against UNLV, and I only want to mention that because Howard's quarterback was the younger brother of Cam Newton, who I believe trained with Richmond once or twice. That's probably just about the shortest amount of time we've seen on previewing a game in the history of this podcast. 
And I'm kind of glad that's the case because it means that we've had reason to really dive into these previews. But but I really just kind of want to save time and get to the much more interesting games that take up the rest of Saturday, beginning with the mid-afternoon clash at Metricon Stadium, where I hope the crowd is as good as it was for the Collingwood game last week. But I expect to be disappointed as the Suns host Richmond in what will be the Mavior Chol Revenge game. This one gets underway in your typical Saturday afternoon slot. If you're on the West Coast of the United States, it'll still be Friday, starting at 11.35, 2.35 a.m. on the East Coast, and 4.35 p.m. local bounce in Queensland between two teams separated by two wins and four places on the ladder. This is available on Fox Soccer Plus in addition to Watch AFL here in the States. The Suns are a really entertaining and easy to pull for 7-8 and eight team. They really don't feel like they deserve to be in 11th with the fights that they've put up as of late, losing the Biters to Port Adelaide and Collingwood in the past couple weeks. If there's one point of criticism that I have, it's that Stuart Dude didn't give enough time on ground to the two guys making their debut and could have really thought that maybe some fresh legs could have served him well at the end of the game. How awesome would it have been had Ace Oya gotten the winning goal or point in his first game? That would have been too good. That would have been one of those telling, you know, you tell whoever's writing the script, hey, this is too predictable. Not everything has to be a happy ending. I mean, there will probably still be a movie about him at some point. Richmond enter at 9-6 and six in 7th place, having had to fight with the West Coast Eagles a decent amount. Their accurate kicking really helped them along there. They kicked 20 goals, 8 this past round. The Suns were supposed to host the Tigers at Metricon Stadium last year around this time. It was in round 16, but with all the various COVID restrictions between Victoria and Queensland, the game was moved from Metricon to Marvel Stadium, and we know how much the Tigers love playing there, and it showed because the Suns won that by 10 behinds. The injuries continue to pile up for the Suns. I believe you already mentioned they've lost Three guys to ACL injuries in three weeks. Connor Butterick is the latest of those. Also, just dropped before we were about to record, Oleg Markov will miss this game in COVID protocols. I think that really means Caleb Graham is going to have to do more than just kind of be the foundation and the pace setter. I think he's going to have to really step up and handle the ball a lot more than he usually does. He also could have a tough time if he's matched up with someone like Tom Lynch or perhaps Toby Nankervis when he goes to play forward more. I mean, with Graham, you're able to create a size advantage or at least neutralize someone else's size advantage. So I wouldn't expect to see him in any other role than that. It's a shame that Alex Davies won't play in this one as well as he still needs a couple weeks to recover from a knee injury. I feel like he could have been a really interesting one to watch in terms of matching up with one of the smaller guys for Richmond, whether it could have been, I don't know, Morris Rioli Jr. or Shea Bolton even. As entertaining and potentially suffocating as the Gold Coast midfield trio of Matt Rowell, Noah Anderson, and Tuke Miller are, I still see Richmond's numbers being able to overwhelm them. However, the Tigers will have to make do without Dustin Martin. It's more than just hamstring awareness. It's a minor strain, and it's going to keep him out at least for this game and maybe for the next one as well. Additionally, Nick Flostone, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, is serving a suspension for this game. Richmond decided not to challenge it. It was expected initially that they would. It could open up a spot for Matthew Parker because Richmond desperately needs a more physical defender to be able to match up with Mavi or Chol. And Lawstone seemed like a really logical matchup there, whereas someone of slider build like Dylan Grimes, who is still a fantastic defender, just doesn't seem like the right body to have against him. Oh, and you've also got Levi Caswell to deal with there as well. In better news on the injury front for the yellow and black, former son Dion Prestia should be ready to go, returning from the concussion that he suffered at the hands of Tom Stewart a couple rounds ago. With how bad that play looked, I was worried that it could be something longer term, but it's been a relief to see that he's been recovering at a good clip, and hopefully he'll be able to bounce back and get plenty of action right away. Circling back to Matt Rowell, because he's become such an interesting player to watch this year with how much work he does on the ground at stoppages. I'm not sure how Richmond are going to approach stoppages in terms of who they want on him and also how much they just want to try to move the ball quickly and avoid them altogether because Prestia has been awesome at getting the ball out of those contested areas. But with a guy like Raul down there, do you want to just go right at him or do you want to try to avoid getting into those battles with him in the first place? 
I'm just surprised Presti is going to be able to play after suffering such a traumatizing, horrific injury that should have had criminal charges pressed. Stunning and brave of you to say that. Seriously, though, I still am a bit surprised that he's back so quickly. Both these teams definitely like to run. The Suns have been trying to run down the wings for a while, but with the injuries they've suffered, I think it's going to be a lot tougher. Meanwhile, Richmond can go anywhere and everywhere with Sharon in hand with how many pieces they have that are able to do that. And so even though the Suns are favored by one and a half, I enter this game with a good feeling about Richmond, actually. I do as well. And I'm interested to see, assuming they win, how much they win by. I think that may tell us a lot about the Suns on two fronts, where they are mentally and how close they are to being a finals team. How close they are considering the injuries they have to deal with as well. I mean, you could give all sorts of hypotheticals about, you know, if the Suns are healthy, how far do they go? Hopefully we'll be able to see more of that next year, knocking on wood, because the tray on which my computer is resting is wooden. But got to roll with the punches, and it's going to be a good test for Stuart Dew. He's got the contract. All of his attention should have been on the game at hand in the first place, but that question had to have been bothering him at the back of his mind. Now it's not. What's their plan of action going to be? Thanks to Anchor for sponsoring and hosting us. Thank you to all the podcatchers that host us. Thank you to Brian Harambe for sleeping next to me. You can find him on Instagram at catnamedbrian. You can also find me on Twitter at Castle Media. You can find me at BenjaminHK01. Together, we're on Twitter at Americans Footy, and that's where we post our live reactions and other thoughts of other things around the AFL all week. And just so you can get a sense of our individual perspectives, we do mark those tweets with our initials. So if there's a B at the end, it's me. If there's an E at the end, it's my brother. Once again, Saturday wraps up with two games running at just about the exact same time, though they are offset by five minutes, which may help with the viewing experience if you're trying to keep an eye on both. The first of those is under the roof at Marvel Stadium, where St. Kilda hosts Fremantle for the second meeting between the two teams this year. You know, when they met back in round two, I remember being so disappointed with the Dockers because I had been very high on them and very low on the Saints at the start of the year. And I still think, in hindsight, that was one of Fremantle's weaker performances this year. But obviously, the Saints are better than we knew. And in turn, that should make this a pretty compelling ballgame. In that round two game, I remember criticizing Justin Longmuir for putting Michael Frederick too far forward. And it seems like he's really learned how to use him since. And for that and a host of other reasons, I think it'll be a whole lot tougher for the Saints to replicate a double-digit margin of victory like they had back in round two when they won by 10 in Perth. And that win does continue to look more and more impressive by the week. St. Kilda currently sit in ninth place at 9-6 and six after somewhat shockingly taking down the Blues last round, while Fremantle bounced back with an eight-point win over a Port Adelaide team that is playing much better than their record suggests. They're now in fourth at 11-4, and four, the lowest percentage of the three teams on 44 points, though it's pretty close between all of them. It's funny, for a while I thought percentage-wise they were in such good shape because defensively they've done so well, but they've shown some cracks there in the last few weeks, including, like you just alluded to, giving up 91 points in a win. That seems pretty unlike them with what they've established over the last few seasons. They kind of pulled a Carlton where they nearly let the game get away from them late, but they managed to reel it in. American viewers can watch this game on Fox Sports 1, and coverage will begin at the top of the hour for that, so that'll be 2 a.m. Pacific, 5 a.m. Eastern in the early hours of Saturday the 9th. It'll actually bounce 25 minutes later, 2.25 a.m. Pacific, 5.25 a.m. Eastern, 5.25 p.m. in Western Australia for all the Docker fans and some Saints fans likely out there, and 7.25 p.m. local in Victoria. It looks like St. Kilda will have more options this week with Daniel McKenzie and Mitch Owens set to return from concussion, but they'll be without one of their most important defenders. Dougal Howard had arthroscopic knee surgery and will miss three to four weeks. The good thing for the Saints is that the sub they had last week, Tom Highmore, is similar enough of a player that you could just see him slotting in right where Howard was past round, but it's definitely a loss in terms of leadership that Howard has been able to provide back there. I think a lot rests on Callum Wilkie's shoulders to make sure that the defensive structure is maintained, especially, again, against a team like Fremantle where your defenders are going to be pressured so heavily. That really comes into focus, having a mature and experienced defense. Additionally, Dan Hanabry 
may play in the VFL this week as he attempts to return from the latest issue with his calf. He went to Germany to receive some treatment for it. Haven't heard of any other player in our three years watching the sport going out of country for anything medical. That said, going out of the country had some different parameters a couple years ago, but it's still it's still kind of a crazy concept. With American athletes, you see, you know, they might travel across the country to see a certain surgeon or something, but it's not like they ever go overseas. They cover significant distances, but no more than like, you know, a five-hour plane flight maximum. Obviously, Germany's a little bit farther than that. Fremantle may have some options as well. It depends on the health status of Heath Chapman in defense and Matt Tapperner in forward line. Chapman should play at some level recovering from a hamstring injury, but will it be with the top side or will he come back through Peel Thunder? Additionally, Tapperner was subbed out with hamstring tightness the past round that allowed Bailey Banfield to enter the game. Can definitely see Banfield getting into the main 22, whether or not Tapperner's in, maybe just shifting things around a bit. Although I think Banfield is the right kind of player for that sub role. Tavener could otherwise be replaced by Darcy Tucker, who made a quick recovery from his own injury, that being to his ankle. With issues in defensive depth that the Saints may have, and how a lot rests on Callum Wilkie, I'm thinking about how much they may decide to move Tim Memory back for periods of time. It's really tough because of what he's able to provide offensively. We saw the amazing work he did last game, where he kicked four goals, including one that was really unfortunate to miss out on the goal of the week nominations going over his shoulder for what we kind of look back on as the dagger in that one. Between Membry, King, and whichever Ruck pushes forward, you have those three in there, and it's going to be a tough time for even the best defensive core to be able to stratify those targets and get good matchups on every single one of them. I think the real story surrounding this game is the photo of Nat Fife that the Dockers posted to Twitter a couple hours ago. It's a black and white photo, and his arms are insane. I think he's using anchor arms, which, you know, would be fitting with the, uh, the team's logo. Either that or the Fremantle Supplement Saga has just begun. Ooh, we can really clickbait that. I'm a little bit puzzled by the line here, St. Kilda being favored by a point and a half. How much does the cross-country travel for Fremantle factor into things? How much does the win against Carlton factor into it? How much does the round two result matter? I would still favor the Dockers for this game, just considering St. Kilda's recent form, but I could see this one going anywhere. You could see the Saints running away with it. You know, a big game for Max King, although I think this is a tough matchup for him to do that, or just a bad offensive game for Fremantle, and then a quick three-goal Saints run could absolutely do that. King against Alex Pierce, I envision as a really entertaining matchup, if that's who he happens to go to. Maybe it's Griffin Logue, who's definitely grown on to us and the entire AFL fandom. He's definitely a bit of a flyer. Thinking about it now, maybe it's Hayden Young who ends up going up against King with how good jumpers both of them are. We saw the best of the best from Hayden Young this past round, of course. And you talked about one do-or-die game earlier in terms of the Gold Coast Suns against Richmond. Another home team definitely has a do-or-die game on Saturday, and it's Port Adelaide against Greater Western Sydney if Port isn't already dead. I'm saying it's do-or-die for Ken Hankley more than it is for the team because I think the team is out of the finals race at this point. Compared to the Suns, the Power have a much nastier run home. I believe during the round 16 recap, I said that the Power need to win five out of this six-game stretch, and they already suffered a loss this past round, so the margin for error is pretty much gone. Pretty much. They have a much easier time in the final two rounds of the season. If you could count an Adelaide showdown as an easier time, I mean... It is their home showdown. The emotions of that game still run super high, and those games find a way to be close more often than not. But, look, they've got seven games left. I see three as games they should win. This is one of those, but I don't think this one's going to necessarily be easy. I don't think any of those games are necessarily easy with the way the Giants and Bombers have played. And then again, that game against the Crows, it's the showdown. You can follow all those rivalry, you know, throw out the records when these teams play each other, all, all those cliches. So we can firmly say if Port lose this game, they're done. And Ken Hankley's fired. He could retain his job if, you know, they end up having that, you know, that loss to knock them out of the finals run comes against someone in the eight, whether that be the Demons next week, the Cats after that, Collingwood, Richmond. But this is not a knock on GWS. 
this is a must win for Port Adelaide. And this would be a must win for them, even if they had won a couple of those games earlier in the season. Because if you've got finals aspirations, this is the sort of team you need to beat. As we mentioned earlier, this game starts five minutes after the other late game on Saturday, which means it's a 7 p.m. bounce in Adelaide, 7.30 p.m. in the eastern states in Australia. For us American viewers, 5.30 a.m. Eastern, 2.30 Pacific on Saturday the night, where you can view it on Watch AFL or Fox Soccer Plus. Port enter at 7 and 8. They're in 12th, and with how well they've been playing, even in close defeats as of late, it's hard to believe that they started 0-5. It's also hard to believe that GWS started 2-7. They've been 500 through six games under Mark McVay, and last round they more than outdid Hawthorne at a rainy Giants stadium. Last year, these teams were supposed to meet in Canberra, and then the game got moved to Marvel Stadium. Remember all the fun of snap lockdowns and the silliness of that garbage? Not in the U.S., we were spectators. Anyway, Port Adelaide won by 27. Injury-wise, the big out for them will be Lockie Jones, who is expected to now miss three or four weeks, which sucks because he's fun to watch and has great hair, and had been playing really well leading up to this injury. To see the evolution that he'd been undertaking from a somewhat quiet halfback in his first year to a winger and a sort of pressure half-forward has been one of the many entertaining things about Port Adelaide, and I'd say one of the two main entertaining parts of watching their younger crop as of late, along with the run that Connor Rosie has had. Rosie will have one of his midfield mates back in Zach Butters, in all likelihood. Butters having largely gotten over his knee injury from a couple rounds ago against the Swans. Xavier Dersma is also expected to return from a quad injury that caused him to be a late out last round, though it may be tough for him to crack the main 22, and he may have to spend another game as the medical sub. Scott Lysett was supposed to make his return via the Sandfall last week, and then he didn't play, so that's something worth keeping an eye on. I really, I had mentioned in last round's preview that I thought having him return to the AFL against Sean Darcy would have been a really bad move, and I'm glad they didn't do that. Now, imagine if he had to return against Braden Pruce. Thing is, Pruce has been playing in the reserves lately, and it's been Matt Flynn who's got the top ruck time for the Giants, so that's a threat to continue watching for them. In terms of the Giants' injuries, James Peatling made a quick recovery from a hamstring injury and could figure into selection, as could Lech Allier, spelled A-L-E-E-R, as opposed to Allier Allier A-L-I-I-R, and they could be playing on opposite sides this week because his calf injury now behind him, Lech could be in line to make his AFL debut. I love the idea of Allier going up against Allier Allier. That's really my only opinion about this. Um... As for the actual football, things that appeal to me in this game, which I will be taking the majority of the work on while Benjamin handles the Dockers Saints game, I want to see how the midfielders match up against each other. I want to see, you know, what does Ollie Wines do? What does Connor Rosie do against the likes of Canelio and Taranto? And Callan Ward as well. It's hard to think that Ward sometimes gets lost in the mix. But he kind of does because he isn't as big of a runner as Canelio and Taranto. But he's definitely a strong tackler and is a good kick when he pushes forward. So I can kind of see some Ollie Wines parallels there. I mean, Wines is a good runner, but he isn't the focus there now with what Rosie has done as of late. I also want to see just what kind of defensive structure can the Giants put up. Last week, they had a good defensive game, but also deserves a mammoth asterisk because of the conditions. So how do they handle a team that's pretty skilled offensively? The potential for a Phil Davis-Charlie Dixon matchup has to be looking forward to Port's forward 50 time for sure. The power are favored by 16 and a half, but with the way that the Giants have been playing and how they're still pretty unpredictable, this is one that I would not consider laying a hand on unless I was going for, you know, tipping the entire round. I think this is actually a pretty appropriate line. One other thing that appeals to me in this game, I think it'll give us a good evaluation of Port Adelaide's defense because they're going to be Tested pretty well in this one. Ryan Burton got off to a really strong start last week all over the ground and then tapered off somewhat quickly. He'll need to be more in the spotlight, I figure, in this one. Speaking of spotlights, in order for a spotlight to really affect the crowd, it needs to be dark so that the light kind of attracts all the attention. You can't really do that for an afternoon game, and that's what we're going to get to kick off football on Sunday. How's that for a transition? Not as forced as I would have expected, oddly enough. And that first afternoon game 
at 110 Australian Eastern Standard Time is Brisbane and Essendon at the GABA, but which is a real interesting matchup when they first met in round two with the Lions starting poorly and then coming on strongly starting around the second quarter to win by 22. But they've had pretty much opposite results, these two teams, this whole year. And they're exactly opposite on the ladder right now in terms of win, loss, and position. Brisbane, 11-4, and four, they're third. Essendon, 4-11, and 11, they're 16th. And 1.10 p.m. in Eastern Australia on Sunday the 10th converts to 11.10 p.m. Eastern, 8.10 p.m. Pacific on the 9th in the United States, where you can watch this on Watch AFL or Fox Soccer Plus. We know that both Daniel Rich and Dane Zorko will be out with hamstring injuries this week. The good news for the Lions is that both of them look to be quite short-term. A few different ways they could go about patching those holes. Michael Whiting suggests that Devin Robertson could get in as well as Jackson Pryor. And if Pryor gets in, in turn, Kalamachi could slide back to a defensive role. Considering who they're going up against, though, when you assume that Essendon will have two Ruckman, I think that makes a really convincing case to get Darcy Ford in there. And not just as the medical sub like he was that one time, which was a savvy decision when it did occur. But I just don't think it fits this matchup. I think you got to have two Rucks the whole way. I was impressed with how Kadeem Coleman slid back a bit further and was more of the mover out of halfback with Rich out. Rich being such a consistent runner and a long and accurate kick, that's a tough guy to replace. And I was surprised that it was someone of smaller and slider frame that was able to do that so well. But Coleman's versatility, especially going back into defense where he's trained all the way through juniors, has been a real highlight for the Lions the past few rounds. Essendon's injury report is somewhat short. Archie Perkins will miss another week with a calf injury. They didn't need him last round to shock the Sydney Swans, though. But Andrew Agrath should be back from his adductor strain. Looking forward to him and Darcy Parrish working the ball out of the back third. Parrish moved the ball with much more intent into contest last round, and I think having Agrath there will inspire him to do that even further. You mentioned the Perkins injury. I loved how he played in that St. Kilda win. And someone's going to have to step up and be that guy who has a lot of touches in the forward 50 that lead to scores, whether it's his own goals or somebody else's. And I think that falls back to one of the guys who was one of the few bright spots at the start of the year for the Bombers in Matt Guelphy. Guelphy could be that guy. Maybe it'll be on Nick Martin to get some more touches as well because he's looked pretty polished as of late. Zach Merritt has done some good things on ball in tighter spaces in the forward 50, so maybe it's going to be even more of a focus for him. And remember, Peter Wright didn't have a real starring role last round as well. So a lot of options there for Essendon further make up for what they lack in Perkins being out. Lions are favored by 29 and a half. You know, they're at home. Really hard to argue against them at home, especially after what they just did to the Bulldogs. It's the Lions at home during the home and away season. It seems like easy money. And if the Bombers shock us for a second week in a row. I have no idea what stupid thing I would say that I would promise to do. Speaking of promises, I promised to cover the middle game on Saturday night within the U.S. Sunday afternoon for those of you in Australia because it overlaps with the West Coast Eagles. So if you want to follow Hawthorne against Adelaide, I'm your guy. I'll be supplying all the fire tweets. This one at Marvel Stadium, you see, I don't have direct sources in the internal discussions here, but I don't see the Hawks throwing a fit over getting sent to Marvel instead of playing at the MCG. I think some teams could learn from that. Some teams? Mm-hmm. Maybe a team? Honestly, I'm surprised Collingwood hasn't thrown a fit with how their past couple home games at Marvel have gone. This will be the nationally broadcasted game on 7 with the 3.20 p.m. Sunday bounce. So if you're in South Australia... You know the drill, 30 minutes before that. In this case, that's 2.50. If you're on the East Coast of the United States, this one gets underway at 1.20 a.m. on Sunday the 10th. And if you're like us and you're on the West Coast and not being destroyed by humidity, but constantly looking out of the corner of your eye, checking for wildfires, that's what we call bushfires. This one will get underway still Saturday night at 10.20 p.m. Now, if you don't have Watch AFL and want to watch this in the U.S., you're going to have to wait around because this one will be available on delay on Fox Soccer Plus on Sunday the 10th at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern. I'm kind of bummed that I'm missing this game, even with both teams being rebuilding teams and well out of the finals picture. Hawthorne 
are 4-11. They're in 15th. They're a damn entertaining 4-11 team, though, because they always come out of the gate hot. You can expect Dylan Moore to kick a first quarter goal or two. You can expect Shankworth Jaff to figure in large early, but they just can't retain that energy and that run throughout. The Crows are a spot and a win above the Hawks in 14th place at 5-10. But the real reason that I'm bummed about this being your game is because of how crazy this game was last year. It was Anzac Day, Hawthorne hosted Adelaide in Launceston. It was dueling five goal scorers, Jacob Kaczynski, 5-3. Riley Philthorpe on debut, scored five straight. The Crows started 15-0 and lost. Hawthorne won 15-12-102-16-3-99 in a game that had no business being as good as it was and I know that because of that, I'll be disappointed when this one falls short. Like the round 19 meeting did, that one was moved from the Adelaide Oval to an empty Marvel Stadium. I believe it was the only game relocated out of South Australia throughout the entire season. Adelaide won that game by 19. And when the Crows beat the Hawks back in 2020, it snapped their 0-13 start to the season. Both these teams could have some call-ups from the twos. Fox Hill and the Crows-Sanfil team both played quite well last week. As for the more established pieces, the dislocated shoulder that James Warple suffered last week could keep him out for the rest of the year. It looks like Chad Wingard will be out once again after injuring. I've seen it listed as both his hamstring and his calf, so I'm not sure which it actually is. We're just going to go with lower body injury and do it like the NHL injury reports. We appreciate the specificity that the... AFL reports tend to have. Heck, without that, we wouldn't know what syndesmosis is. Some later injury news that's gotten me really excited is that big boy Ben McAvoy is going to be playing just his second game this year after finally recovering from his broken collarbone that he suffered in training following round two. It's been a while since Hawthorne have really had stability in the ruck, and between McAvoy and Ned Reeves, they'll certainly have that now. We'll also note that Jack Gunston will not be playing this week as he mourns his father's passing. Sam Mitchell talked about Jack putting himself first in his press conference, and I'm glad that's the conversation that's being had. Shane McAdams should be able to return for the Crows, but not sure about Ned McHenry. I'd say if you had to evaluate his status right now for this game, somewhere in between questionable and doubtful. If you were wondering how the spectrum goes on one end, out. And then ascending, it goes doubtful, questionable, probable, in. Additionally, Josh Rochelle has had a nagging hip injury. He's tried to play through it, but he will be out this week. Unfortunately, that one of the most entertaining young players in the league will have to miss another round. And sorry, Ralphie, with how other players have been going lately, his rising star case is getting weaker, though, by no fault of his own. But maybe John Newcomb can strengthen his case this round, although at this point, I think it's pretty safe to say it's going to be Nick Dacos. Hawks are favored in this game by a smooth 10.5. This is another one that could really go anywhere, and I think it'll be a great chance for us as viewers to take stock, take inventory, and figure out what these two teams have, because usually when we watch them, we're more focused on their opponents, just the way their last couple seasons have gone. Like so many AFL game days and like so many rounds, Sunday and round 17 as a whole end out west at Optus Stadium. And maybe a couple people I know will be there. I'm not sure if if my mom's friend and her husband will be there, but I'd say they have a lot of reason too with how the Eagles have been going lately, what Carlton have been doing this season, and also how the Eagles have had good history against the Blues having won seven straight meetings. The Carlton having last gotten over them back in round six of 2014. The Eagles and Blues will bounce at 2.40 p.m. local time in Perth. So that'll be 4.40 p.m. for the Eastern Australian states. On the East Coast of the U.S., that's 2.40 a.m. on Sunday the 10th. For us out West, it's 11.40 p.m. still on Saturday the 9th. And this will be on Fox Sports 2. It's another week where the Eagles get a game on regular U.S. TV. And I'm not sure what to make of it other than the fact that they've had some really interesting opponents as of late. I'm just happy that this game is going to actually be played at the venue it's supposed to be played at because last year when they met in round 12, Carlton had to host it at the SCG instead of the MCG, and the Eagles won by 22. Coming into the Chris Judd Cup, as I started to call it, like how Carlton and Adelaide was called the Eddie Betts Cup, the Eagles are 2-13 in 17th, though these past three games, even though they've only won one of them, 
They've been a much more palatable team just with getting a whole bunch of pieces back. Carlton are still very watchable, though their surprise loss to St. Kilda last round put a serious dent in their top four hopes and drove a real wedge between them and the teams ahead of them. They sit in fifth place at 10 and 5. The injury list for the Eagles remains long, though not quite as daunting as it was a few weeks ago, though it looks like the stress fracture in Dom Sheed's shin is going to keep him out the remainder of the year. That's a tongue twister, and that is yet another season-ending injury for the Eagles, who couldn't even get Oscar Allen and Campbell Chesser off the ground to start the campaign. Just been rotten luck for him. We don't know at this point if Jeremy McGovern could be back either. The hamstring injury that Elliot Yo suffered last week should keep him out probably like a month, put him in a spot to maybe play the final game or two or maybe even three if you're lucky. Perhaps former blue Sam Petrevsky seaton could now get elevated from the medical sub role into a full spot. He's always someone I liked. I remember him being fun to play with on AFL Evolution 2, like the offensive side of his game. He's really eager to play in the direct vicinity of the ball, regardless of which team has possession. And in that vein, I thought he was a savvy pick to be a medical sub, though I would more than welcome him getting another shot in the main 22. He's still only 24 years old, and I have some elements of his game that can really fit the identity that the Eagles are now trying to pursue, where they're actually, you know, I have been so sick of the Eagles just bringing it around town. Bring it around town! Swing it across fullback and trying to get an outlet on the wing. With their style of play now, encouraging more direct movement through the middle, quicker runs, faster disposals. Petreski seaton can certainly fit that type of game. In terms of what they're going to do in halfback without Yo, even more responsibility will fall on Jermaine Jones. Other than him, maybe you'll have Brady Hoff pushing a bit more forward. He's done a lot of good starting scores from the back. Maybe Adam Simpson and company will encourage him to do a bit more midfield-like work in trying to broaden his game a bit. As for the Blues, returns are likely for Lockie Fogarty, Matthew Owies, and Jacob Wiedering. Respectively, Fogarty was dealing with a back injury, Owies a calf ailment, and Wiedering an AC joint an AC joint injury that took him out of the narrow loss to Collingwood. It's all just going to make West Coast's task even tougher as the Blues begin to get back to full health. They have so much depth that it's been scary to face them regardless, but with Wiedering anchoring things back there, it's going to be even tougher for Jack Darling, Josh Kennedy, who will return after being managed last week, it seems. I feel like people forget that he played for Carlton. He was actually in the Chris Judd trade. It'll make the odds that the Eagles have to overcome even greater, So I see one area where they may be able to get some good done is in the matchup between Nick Natanui and Tom DeConing. I mean, I'd take Natanui over just about anyone in the center circle. The question is, though, just how much will the Eagles be able to get hits to advantage with the ability that Sam Walsh, Patrick Cripps, and the like have out of the middle? In his return last week, Adam Chera did not look like he was fully up to speed. I want to see if he can get closer this week towards what he's been striving for. Carlton being favored by 16 and a half seems low, even when you're factoring in the matchup history, the fact that this is being played out West. I get that Richmond had to kick very well to win by 35 last round against the Eagles, but I just don't see that performance repeating itself for one reason or another. I want to be optimistic, but I thoroughly expect Carlton to bounce back and then some be super motivated to get what should be theoretically four easy points for them. I would set this line right around 19, which I believe it was in that vicinity at first and then it's dropped down some. Maybe there was a confirmation of injuries that factored into that. Unsure. We'll mention before we wrap things up that Ed, Charlie's brother, Kernow, and Sam, no relation to Corey Durden, may play in the VFL this week as they look for a return to the big time before home and away's end. We have a feeling that this was probably a shorter round of preview, and honestly, we like that. Because as much as we love talking about this, we get how draining it can be for you to listen all the way through it. So hopefully a more condensed episode will be to your liking. I'm going to condense myself into bed because it has been a really long day, including the time spent on planes, in the airport, three-hour time change, you name it. I'm ready to call it a night, but I'm excited to get going with round 17 in almost exactly 24 hours from when we're finishing this recording. Again, you can find us on Twitter at Americans Footy. I am at BenjaminHK01. I am at Castle Media. My cat, Brian, is sleeping right next to me. It is great to be back with him. He is on Instagram exclusively at Cat Named Brian. 
but don't worry, just like Brian Myers will play tomorrow, so will Brian Harambe the cat. He was running all over the place at the start of the episode, and I'm glad that he wore himself out when he did because it meant that we didn't have to, you know, stop the recording and check on him and see where the hell he's crammed his mouse toy into this time. Usually it's beneath one of two doors down here, either the laundry room or the closet, but that's not a worry right now. My worry is hitting stop on this recording and getting this edited in time because I'm also working super early. That's going to be fun, but these games are going to be even more fun. Thanks for listening, y'all.